are finally back. We haven't even been gone long. Just feels like it's been a while. But we are back. This is the ATP Podcast with your boy Jay, Mark Figueroa. And this is the Big 150. The Big 150. I feel like this is a, a good benchmark episode. Uh, how you feeling today, man? Uh, good. Uh, there, there are a couple of tournaments, but uh, there's a lot of off-court stuff that'll entertain. Okay. That's what I like to hear. What's going on off the court? All right. So first, we're going to start with uh, Petra Kvitova married her coach in Prague. So hmm. congratulations to her. Uh, Shababalov got engaged. Uh, wow. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I, I'll, I'll just say it now. Uh, he's been uh, having some injury problems. Shapo? Yes. Really? As long as Ali Asim. I'll bring that up a little later. Hmm. But he's been missing uh, tournaments here and there, hence uh, the poor results. But he got engaged, so congratulations to him. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about the, the big controversy on the women's side, which is at the Hungarian Open. Now, this was between the Hungarian player, Toth and Zhang. They were playing on clay, and <clears throat> excuse me, Zhang hit a ball on the line. And then Toth, the Hungarian player, mm. uh, went over and just stepped on the mark. Then it was an important uh, part of the set mm. and then Zhang went up to the umpire and said you're really going to allow to you're really going to allow her to do that mm. and the chair umpire didn't really say anything mm. and uh, uh, the Hungarian player got caught red handed mm. that they showed the replay mm. and they showed her stepping on the mark mm. so the controversy is this so all of a sudden Zhang started to cry because it's an important point uh, they gave the point to the Hungarian player, mm-hmm. and she pretty much left, took off. Wow. She said, I'm done. Uh, after the match, uh, Toth uh, um, did an apology, mm-hmm. but it didn't really sit well on the Twitter sphere. Wow. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, that is that is the umpire's job to enforce and provide consequences for you know things like that. You just... A pro tennis player knows you don't do that. That's a known. I mean, non-pro players know. So that uh, that should have had repercussions. That shouldn't have been allowed. At the absolute bare minimum, and even this could have warranted someone being upset, it should have been a replay. So, yeah, I don't like that at all. And then when she retired from the match, just quit, uh, Toth started to celebrate. As if she just won something huge. Mm. And again, the Twitter uh, Twitter spirit just went off on her. Uh, you had players, uh, Martina, going off on the ref. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember the ref at the time, the chair umpire. Mm-hmm. But she said she uh, this ref shouldn't even be allowed to work another match, period. I agree. So do you have anything to add to that? Um, it just seems like there's been a lot of iffiness with umpires and refs lately. I'm not feeling it. Um, a little discouraging for me as far as, you know, these people are playing on a tour that's already extremely imbalanced as far as pay goes with a lot on the line in these earlier rounds. It just seems unfortunate that players are having to deal with this. It's like they have a third opponent or a second opponent on the court, you know? Yes. So I don't like it. Yes, exactly. So now the big uh, controversy as well is Saudi Arabia. Excuse me. As you know, they've been trying to just make an 
uh, an empire as far as sports is concerned. The PGA has been going over there. They just uh, uh, got Ronaldo to play over there. Mm-hmm. And now they have uh, the next gen uh, playing there. It used to be in Milan. Mm-hmm. And now it's going to be played there. And if they mm-hmm. do a good job, they're trying to get a Masters 1000. Ooh. And if it does a good job, it's going to be in Jetta. And if it does a good job, they're applying for an, a license to have an ATP Masters 1000 event. Now, the WTA got approached by them as well, and they're all, no, we're not doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's because of the uh, the rights with women and all that. But what are your thoughts? Do you think that the ATP should have an event in Saudi Arabia? Look, money talks. That is the bottom line. And these Saudis are dropping major payola, major payola to get the biggest and best of sports into their area. It's going to be a matter of will the ATP stand on morals and principles and what exactly are those morals and principles? Because there are tournaments that are only the men, there are tournaments that are only the women in certain areas. So it's not that it would be some crazy deviation from the current tour patterns where maybe only the men are playing there. But you got to ask yourself, does the ATP need to stand by the WTA if there's going to be a misogynistic tour event or something like that in this day and age? So it'll be interesting to find out what happens. Yeah, so that's the big problem there. Mm. So now going on to the men. So you have Manorino who ended up winning in Rhode Island. Yeah, he's been he's been making solid runs. Yes, so, so he's been making solid runs. You have a uh, Rublev beating uh, Rude in the clay court event, and as a matter of fact, uh, um, Vavrinka and Stricker won the doubles there as well. I didn't realize that. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, so good for him. What are your thoughts on that? Rublev has been quietly very successful yes um i think people need to keep a close eye on him he's shown that he has a presence on all four surfaces even with his quote-unquote limited tools so i think that rublev is a guy that we should really see as a permanent top eight player and a consistent threat and he just needs the right draw at this point Yes, and then uh, give a shout-out to Michelson, who reached his first ever ATP final. That's mm-hmm. who Manorino beat in the final. Mm-hmm. And he beat Isner and a couple other big names on the way to the Rhode Island final. Mm-hmm. So keep an eye on him. So he's making um, <clears throat> runs here and there as well. So now we're going to talk about Djokovic. So Djokovic is going to be missing the Canadian Open. Mm-hmm. Now, he says it's because of fatigue. Mm-hmm. Now, he's been having a ritual lately to where he plays the Canadian Open, plays Cincinnati, and then goes into the U.S. Open. This time, he's deciding to skip the Canadian Open and only playing Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Load management uh, seems very wise for me. I think that now that he's realized, okay, I've my momentum has been broken I'm sure that he's thinking maybe recuperate, regather yourself, reset the palate, get back out there with a tune-up event, and then play the U.S. Open and do it right. And this is what I wish Alcaraz did. Yes. I really do. You know, Alcaraz had three days off, and he was right back into the next tournament. And it's just not necessary, you know, if he wants to preserve his body and be out there for the long haul. So. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I know that Alcaraz is trying to pursue 
all the stats and statistics and that's you know most titles in history most slams in history he wants it all but the guys who've had those trophies didn't have the level of injuries he had at his age right um so for me i think he needs to be a little more calculated and maybe emulate a bit more of the Djokovic plans and the way Djokovic is navigating it, which is if you just came off of a, a very physical slam, take a week off, just a week, you know, take a tournament off and come back. You know, Djokovic is doing it the way it should be done. And I think it's going to pay off for him and he will set his body up to peak at the U.S. Open. That's yes. the game plan. And then you have uh, Lander and uh, Goran. Lander said that Djokovic is losing to history. Mm. He's saying that there's too much weight on his shoulders, mm. and that's why he lost Wimbledon. Mm. It had nothing to do with Alcaraz. Mm. Then Goran said uh, Djokovic didn't take chances against Carlos, which cost him the Wimbledon final. Mm. Now, I did say in the fifth set, he became extremely defensive. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Lander's comments. Do you think that Djokovic lost because of the weight of history and not because Carlos outplayed him? I don't want to say he lost because of the weight of history. I don't think so. If this were the U.S. Open and he was playing for the calendar slam and stuff like that, I would 1,000% agree. He's playing for something he's never done. He's doing something he's never seen in a place he's never been. And that is extremely stressful and a different level of weight on a player. But him going for his third consecutive slam in a year, I feel like there's still pressure and weight, undeniably. But that is a pressure that Djokovic ascends for. He's been there before and done it. And I think that's all it really takes for Novak to have confidence in something. If he's already done it before, there's no reason he can't do it again. I think that it ultimately came down to him playing a guy in the final. On record, he has two matches against prior. That is the problem. There's not a lot of data to collect on this guy. This guy is still growing as a person, which means the guy you played last time is not the guy you're playing this time. Um, there's just discomfort on the court. I don't even want to say, I mean, from a literal sense, he was outplayed. But I want to say more from a player's perspective, he was uncomfortable out there. Because he was playing a guy that is arguably his equal, but Alcaraz has watched Djokovic play on the tour for 20 years. Yes. How many times has Djokovic watched Alcaraz play on the tour? You know, how many years? Maybe one. You know, he's played against him one full match and one where Alcaraz buckled. You know, so I don't blame Novak for what happened. I was surprised it happened. And, you know, it is what it is. I'm looking forward to seeing how he recalibrates, regathers himself, and redeems himself at the U.S. Open with this newfound threat that he's found. And he goes, okay, this guy's ready to beat me. What am I going to do about it? Yes, I, I, um, this is only his third, it's between two and fourth of, of, uh, tournament on grass. Mm-hmm. And he wins Wimbledon. Yeah. And Queens. Yeah. So Alcaraz just played free. Mm-hmm. You can see it in the fifth. Mm-hmm. He smiled, he was smiling, unlike at the French Open. Yeah. And it was a different Alcaraz. Yeah, it's very free. So he was very free, and that's why he won. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about Goran's statement, okay. which is when he said he just didn't play aggressive enough. He was being too defensive. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that comment? I mean, he's he is 100% right. He really is. I just think that it's a little deeper than that. He's oversimplifying it. 
it's hard to take risks when you're playing someone strange to you. Because when you're playing Federer, there's a level of calculated risk, which is, okay, this is a tough shot. It's not something I make all the time, but I know if I make it, I'm more likely to get this result here, right? So you're you're taking a calculated risk on your end of the court for a calculated success on the other end of the court. You're not getting that when you play Alcaraz. You're taking a calculated risk on your side and not really knowing what you're going to get on the other side of the court. And that's double the risk, which makes it twice as hard to do the shot. You know, um, I think that it's it's beautiful. I love that he had to experience this because this is how the tour should be. Yes, it should be. You come in with a strategy and the strategy isn't supposed to always work because you play different people every final. <laughs> you play Nadal and Fed every final and we know it works against these guys and we know it doesn't. And it becomes a chess match of whose calculated risks work more often. You know, so I think that he's just got a, a peek into what his optics will be for the future moving on because his finals will not be against the people he's used to always playing in finals. He's now got to get used to playing against people where when he takes his big shots and makes big decisions, he doesn't actually know what's going to come from it. And there's a added level of risk and pressure there where maybe he's going to go, okay, should I just do the shot? I know will go in the safe shot and see what happens. Or should I go for the one? I don't know. will go in and then see what happens as well. So I get what he did. It was just the wrong choice. Yes, and Alcaraz also had an adult thing going on. If you saw his bottles, they were all lined up. Mm-hmm. And in one of them, it was pickle juice. Mm-hmm. And that was for the cramps. Yes, indeed. So uh, he added something that he didn't have before. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was very smart. Uh, El Mosquito did a good job doing his research. I don't know who did it. Maybe mm-hmm. it wasn't him. Maybe it was another part of the team. Yeah. But they definitely did their work. Yeah, they did. Everything was there. Yes, and now some interesting stats. So Alcaraz is the first uh, born person in the 2000s to win multiple Grand Slams. Nobody in the 90s that was born in the 90s Mm. has done that. Obviously, Mm. Medvedev has won. Dominic Team has won. Yeah. Uh, What are your thoughts? (sighs) My generation just got skipped, and it's unfortunate. Makes me very sad. But on the flip side, it is showing that the big three did have a stranglehold on two consecutive generations of tennis in completion. And we're just now seeing the gates open up. And you know, what's really funny to me, all those times media goes, is this the passing of the guard? And it never actually was. We're not really hearing that question this time when it actually is the passing, you know? So I love that now they're quiet about it, but I think this is officially showing that that time is coming and that time is changing. Oh yes, for sure. So, yeah, the time has definitely changed. Now, here's a stat for you that I wanted to bring up. Weeks at world number one before turning 21. Mm. You have Nadal, zero. Federer, zero. Murray, zero. Djokovic, zero. Alcaraz, 29. Mm. Any thoughts? That is crazy. That's crazy. Um that's a that's a stat that holds some weight in my opinion. Um, I do think that Federer, at the very least, we should have been able to do a cross comparison with him and Alcaraz, and this is something we can take away from that. And it's that Alcaraz has developed mentally faster than Federer did on the tour, because the threats are equal or just as difficult, and he still figured it out. 
Yes, so. he had that big win against Pete at Wimbledon. Yeah. And that was pretty much his big highlight. Yeah. And he couldn't get off of that pretty much. Yeah, it took him a while. It took him yes, a full it year, took him I a believe. While. Yes. So. so now this is uh, uh, moving on to Zverev. This is a very interesting set. In 2023, he has played the top 10 eight times. He's 0-8 against the top 10. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's felt that way, even though I didn't notice it. And it's it's unfortunate. It is unfortunate for him. But what I've always felt about Zverev in general is that he's just a little bit linear. And now he's dealing with injury. We've always known he has the firepower. He's He has the capability and potential. And he's technically a threat at all times. But there's just that X factor missing. And it's an X factor that I feel like Alcaraz... Holgeruna and Yannick's well a little less Yannick Center for me personally but those two guys they have that oddball x factor of the way they work the court the shot selection the angles they use that the Zverev's of the world don't have so I I'm not surprised uh, he has been coming off of injury yeah do you think is anything else that is preventing him from getting a couple wins uh, against the top 10 mental it's all mental um, we've seen we've seen on big stages what he does mentally versus what he does where he's comfortable. And we've heard his confidence when he's off the court sitting doing nothing and the confidence when he's serving in the fifth set of a slam final. These are two different people. You know, he tells us about how he thinks he's the favorite for the Clay 1000 event. Yes. Or how, you know, he puts himself right behind the big three or, you know, whatever that may be. And that's fine. But then we watch him in the fifth set of a Grand Slam serving a 72 mile per hour serve consecutively multiple times. Where did the guy go who said he's the favorite? Yes. You know, um, it's confidence and insecurities on the court. And if he can't fix that, he's not going anywhere. You know, idolizing Alcaraz instead of trying to beat Alcaraz is his downfall. I will get to the uh, idolizing and uh, wanting to be Alcaraz, but since I'm a since I'm a Djokovic hater, uh, he serves 79 mile an hour second serves, 85 mile an hour second serves, and nobody does anything about it. So yeah, there's there's a difference there though. I don't know if you want to dig into a that. Little, but a little more kick. Uh, he defends better. Yeah, but I was gonna say, uh, his court coverage can yes, compensate. So. Yes, exactly. So we're gonna move to Ali Asim. Okay. Ali Asim has been struggling. Mm-hmm. And he said he's been inspired by seeing Alcaraz do what he's done. Mm-hmm. He says that he's been on tour and he should be where Alcaraz is. Mm-hmm. And he is now inspired by Alcaraz. Mm-hmm. And he, he wants some, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So in 2022, he won three consecutive titles. Mm-hmm. He was quarter. on fire. Fourth yes. quarter of the year. Since in 2023 so far, he's 13 and 11. He had the he had that first round loss to Mo at Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Before I go into more stats, what are your thoughts on those stats on uh, Ali Asim? Yeah, Ali Ali Asim's dip in performance. I want to say that because he's Canadian, it's contagious, and he got it from Chapo. But you know, whatever they're going through, the two of them. Let's just isolate Felix because that's the topic here. It is an unusual slump, and, you know, I'm not sure what's going on because he seems to be fully healthy, and things just aren't clicking. Just last year, he was playing lights-out tennis, like you said, and we could talk about that fourth-quarter run he made, which was amazing, 
and he was serving out of his mind and cracking the ball and dictating play. But even before that, he had a good year. He did. So, you know, last year in general was a different player. We haven't seen a peak of that guy this year. So I really don't understand what's going on with him if there's something happening off court. But him saying that now he's inspired tells me there was nothing really going on. He's just in a slump. And maybe he needs to be motivated or inspired again. Maybe there's some tour burnout. He does play a lot of events on a full schedule. You know, but yeah, it's it's a little alarming. I mean, I have my personal gripe with his game is his backhand. I've always thought that his backhand was a very neutral ball, non-offensive, not super excellent on defense, not super, super consistent. And he relies heavily on hitting a Mach 90 forehand and opening up the court that way. And maybe that's just not enough. Yeah, his forehand's still a little too loopy for my liking. Mm-hmm. But um, Nadal, Tony Nadal has uh, improved that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But since April of this year, he's one in five. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have anything, any thoughts on that? And oh, and he is still 12 in the world with that bad record. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, here's the thing he's 12 in the world because he has points to protect at the end of the year, tournament wins. So I don't think that this is one of those, how, how is he even number 12? It is a his time, his time might be up, you know? Yes, exactly. <laughs> if, he doesn't, if he doesn't step it up in this fourth quarter of the year, he's going to see himself outside the top 20 because um, he's got at least 1,000 points at stake, you know, between now and the end of the year. And 1,000 points is a lot once you're outside the top 10. You know, the difference in rankings can be 100 points when you're in the top 20 instead of the top five. So it'll be interesting to find out what happens to him next because he's one of those few players I don't really have an answer for. Yes, so he did say that he is dealing with an injury and he says that that's one of the reasons why he has been struggling Mm -hmm. but he says seeing the success of Alcaraz makes him hungry Mm -hmm. and there's nothing wrong with him mentally and as soon as this uh injury gets uh better he's gonna do better what are your thoughts on that uh I like to hear that I I love love to hear a player come forward and go look I've just had an injury. I don't have a mental health issue. I don't have anything to say except for I need to get a little more physically present and I will be doing what I was doing before. I like that. That's transparent. That's honest. And that seems to be realistic to me. So I'm here for it. Yes. So moving on to the UTS, uh, I'm not going to dig into it that much. Uh, Obviously, Kyrgios didn't play, but the, the beef here, it's more Monfils. So Monfils, uh, Monfils, um, Eubanks, not Eubanks, um, the the lefty, Shelton, uh, they played at UTS, mm-hmm. and then they went to Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Uh, Monfils had to play the very next day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shelton played two days later. Mm-hmm. Monfils had a gripe and said, that's not fair. Mm-hmm. Why did you protect Ben Shelton but not me? Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, he was up 4-0 in the tiebreaker against Kokonakis mm. and blew the lead, and he ended up losing in three. Do you think Monfils had a point on Atlanta not protecting him? I have a hot take here. I think that the Pro Tour is trying to make Shelton the golden boy in the future of tennis. And I like Shelton. I like him personality-wise. 
I like to watch him play. I don't think that he's what people are branding and marketing him as in the first place, though. I don't think his game is there yet on the baseline. I don't think his game is quite there yet from a consistency standpoint. I think that he's a young guy with major big weapons who's got heavy, heavy USTA support. And that's kind of where it stops for me. Um, I think that a Gelman Fee legacy act that's filled up seats for 15 years is someone that we should protect. He's coming off of injury, you know, and he still played UTS and now he's on the tour in Atlanta, probably filling more seats than Shelton. Probably. Yes. Um, Yeah, I I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Yeah, I don't I don't blame him for feeling the way he did. And to, to have such a blockbuster first round, they should have given him a break. Uh, and have him play Tuesday instead of Monday. Mm-hmm. So he does have a gripe for sure. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't blame him at all. So we're going to get to Nick Kyrgios. Um, the big news from him is uh, he got a massive tattoo. Pokemon. <sighs> Huge. Covered all of his back. The entire back. back. Uh, do you, uh, you want to mention something before I get to the tennis? About that? About that. <sighs> He loves tennis. I mean, he loves Pokemon. <laughs> okay, so, moving on. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was. I was surprised. That's what I'll say. I was surprised by it. He also uh, said that he might appear on the Mike Tyson podcast. Oh, I did see they had a photo together. They found a photo together. And, that would be awesome. Yes, that would be. And now the big big news is that he said, "I don't see myself. I'm old." First of all, he said, "I'm old." I'm 28, 29 years old. I'm old. I don't see myself being on the tour past 32 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, at 32, definitely 33, I'm done. You'll mm-hmm. never see me again. I may coach, but as a player, I'm done. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, he did say if he ever wins a single slam, he's done, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on those comments by Kyrgios? Uh Man, I wish we did our talk about the the Chris Eubanks Tiafo because there this was a topic of conversation which is the players who are pursuing a big legacy, a Michael Jordan legacy, a Roger Federer legacy, a Tiger Woods legacy of the history in the sport and then there are these players who are saying I just need one slam to say I did it and I'm out and there are more and more of that player than the prior Yes. It's changing and shifting. And it's kind of odd for me. You know, you would think players would go, I have the ability. I have the potential. I would like to change history. I'd like to maybe get the most out of what I'm capable of. But a lot of these players are saying, I just need enough to get by. need to make enough money to get in the tour, get out the tour, and go do whatever whatever else I want to do with my life. And Kyrgios is clearly one of those people. Um it's it's weird for me to see. I'm not one of those people. I wouldn't be. It it's sad to see that because you have Djokovic at 36 still. Uh, he's dedicated half of his life or more to tennis. Mm. You see Isner, who's 37, 38 maybe. Yeah. Uh, he lost in the first round of Atlanta, and he admitted it was because of fatigue. Yeah. <clears throat> you have Murray coming back from all these injuries, the hip. Yeah. And then still a warrior mentality out there. Mm-hmm. And since we're talking about this, might as well bring up Nishikori. 
Yeah. Nishikori beat Jordan Thompson to record his first ATP Tour match in two years. Yep. Congrats he, to him. He's been uh, doing the uh, the challenger and look at the tenacity he had to say, I'm not done yet. I have something to prove. Mm-hmm. So, uh, first of all, what are your thoughts on Nishikori? Um, Nishikori is the guy we used to call the paper man. You know, they, uh, they posted this diagram. This must have been three or four years ago. They posted a diagram of a human body on the screen during a tournament and then they put little arrows at all the joints and body parts and all it had a list of all kinds of injuries on the body parts and they went these have all happened to Nishikori while on the tour I was like oh my gosh they might as well just replace all his limbs with like robotic parts because every single thing has been hurt yes he's always injured he's always hurt but I don't know if you heard this quote he said after he won his match he went I've been watching and I played the original big three. I need to play the new big three. Yes, he did say know? that. And yes. he's like, I want to play Holger and Carlos and Yannick. He's like, I haven't played those guys yet, and I want to I want to get a piece of them. So I love his mindset. And he's probably one of the only players in history that I think really missed out, and I feel bad he didn't get his slam. Because yes. he, he, he earned his slam, and he wasn't able to close out, and he deserved it. So, yeah, Nishikori, good to see you back. I wasn't sure he was going to make it out of those challengers. He was kind of caught in the trap, but oh, for sure. he broke through and he's doing well. Yes, and uh, that just shows, again, the tenacity. Now to finish mm-hmm. off the Kyrgios, what are your thoughts comparing Nishikori to Kyrgios now? It's just funny because I consider Kyrgios more talented and a more threatening player, bigger presence on the tour than Kenny Shikori ever has. Yes. But we know that Kenny Shikori's original goal was simply top 50. Yes, that was his original just goal to be on the tour and make the top 50 and he ended up making it to a Grand Slam final top 10 you know he did all these special things and I think that him having to work so hard early on and having the the doubts so early on has helped him fall in love with the sport and be able to stay with the sport much longer and I think Kyrgios is a bit rejecting of the sport at times yes and you know maybe he's got a a little bit of a chip on his shoulder because of the way his journey has been as well and the way the media and fans have felt about him and stuff like that. So, you know, two different types of people. Yes, it's a shame to see that, but, you know, it is what it is. Moving on, uh, the Nadal Academy snatched up another one. So mm. we have uh, Ali Asim. We've had Casper Ruud. Uh, we have Leo Borg coming out of the mm-hmm. Academy. And then, you know, this is a hot spot when they're in... Uh, in Spain or, or around that part, France, mm-hmm. they go to the Nadal Academy to train. Mm-hmm. Uh, Venus was uh, just seen there. Uh, Federer said, "Oh, this is great. If my if my sons ever want to play tennis, I'm sending them there." Mm-hmm. So the new one is Cruz Hewitt, Leighton mm-hmm. Hewitt's son. Wow! And and uh, there was a little statement going on there. Uh, it was stated, uh, "We're here and we're going to try to uh, take out Alcaraz." Oh, wow. What are your thoughts? You know, it's funny. Um, I've always felt that when it comes to children of pros, you have to be the child of a specific type of pro, in my opinion, to become hyper successful on the tour. You cannot be the child of a Roger Federer. You know, I don't think that that's a consecutive generation type of talent. (laughs) But um, when it's a guy who, a Kaney Shikori, a Leighton Hewitt, these grinder, hard worker players who fought with spirit and physicality, those are genetic. You know, um, you can pass those down. 
And I think that maybe if your kid is born with the the raw generational talent and is passed down your tenacity and grind and your physicality, that can make for something special. So I would love to see what Hewitt's son turns out like. Because yes. I think there is great potential there. Hewitt has been active with the tour almost this entire time. He's done ATP Cup coaching, Davis Cup coaching. Yes. He was a hitting partner for Kyrgios at one point. He's extremely active, and his last tournament was only about 10 years ago. Uh, maybe even less than that. I don't remember the exact date, but... Yeah, Hewitt was on the tour not that long ago, and he knew what it took to beat players who were actually more talented than him. Exactly. Um, so I love that. I love to hear that. He's going. He's putting a kid who, in theory, may have all the resources in a place where the resources are. That's true. So Now, you do have to be aware of Alcaraz's younger brother. Mm-hmm. He's a beast, too. I heard. I heard. So I don't know. Uh, Cruz Hewitt's going to have to work hard because there's another Alcaraz on the rise. Oh, man. So uh, be careful. What's the greatest brother duo in tennis history? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, That's a tough one. Uh, I mean, uh, John was the leader. Patrick was so-so. Yeah, because there's Andy and Jamie. Andy and Jamie. But Jamie's just double specialist. Yes. Excellent at it, but just doubles. Um, Bob and Mike are just doubles. Yes. Um, Who else can I think of? There's, There's not a whole lot where both are phenomenal. Right. But obviously, there are the Williams yes. sisters, you know. So, will the Alcaraz brothers be like the Williams sisters? That's possible. It's very possible. Very possible. So, I'm curious to see when there will be a male version of the Williams sisters. Yes, and it may be now, yeah, soon. We might be seeing history. Yes. So, uh, I'm going to say a stat that not a lot of people may know about, about the big three, unless you're just counting their finals. Mm-hmm. So, I just thought this was interesting. Um not very known stat. So, uh, Federer is, has made 31 finals. He's 20 and 11 with a win ratio of 64.5%. Mm-hmm. Uh, Djokovic has made 35 finals with a record of 23 and 12 with a, a win ratio of 65.7%. Mm. Nadal has made 30 finals, mm-hmm. 22 and 8. Ooh. With a win ratio of 73.3%. Wow. What are your thoughts on that? That makes a lot of sense because, let me say this, Nadal's not making the finals as often on his weaker surfaces as the other guys. I think the French Open is the 10% difference. So, that's awesome, though. Those, those are crazy. That means not only are they usually playing each other in the final, they all still won more than half of their finals. So, that's an interesting statistic there. Yes, so moving on to uh, Philippoussis. Now Philippoussis is going to have a little ban here for uh, promoting a betting site. Mm. So maybe that's why Stefanos was, see you later. Mm-hmm. Now, as we know as well, Sakari hired him, her, yes, him, to be his uh, coach for the grass court. So he, he's been promoting this betting site and got a $10,000 fine, and he's suspended from the tour for about five months. Wow. And if he does any more, he'll be suspended for at least a year and a half to two years. Mm-mm. Any thoughts on that? I hope the check was worth it, man. I hope it was worth it. But, yeah, you got to be careful when you're you're endorsing betting sites and stuff like that, especially in tennis where there's a history of fixed match play and stuff like that. Yeah, you've got to be very careful. 
Yes, I mean that that's a a little tender subject. Yeah. But yes, I I hope that it was worth it for him. Most likely it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was risky move for him because he's been he's sort of been coming a Goron to a point. Yeah. He wasn't at that level yet. Mm-hmm. But taking Stefanos to the final of Australia, you can see the improvement on his serve. Yeah. So you could see it. Yeah. So I I don't I don't know why he did that, but it is what it is. And now. Um, Two more subjects. So we have Borna Chorich and Vekic uh, winning Hopman Cup. Mm. Now, I thought Hopman Cup was gone. because too. It was in the beginning of the Australian Open. Mm-hmm. But here they're doing it now. Alcaraz played as well, and he looked solid. Yeah. Uh, but Chorich and Vekic won Hopman Cup. Congratulations to them. What are your thoughts? Uh, congrats to Chorich, who is very much a sleeper, dark horse, invisible man on the tour. He, you know, he comes and he goes. His presence, it has a lot to do with injury and maybe tougher draws, things like that. He's been around for quite a long time, and he's always actually been a rock-solid player. So this is unsurprising for me. But, yeah, that, that's good to hear. I think that they, they had to switch their calendar up because of ATP Cup. Yes. So. And now the big, big news, which is Michael Emer. If you know, he's, he's the one that's been hitting his racket on the chair umpire and mm, all that good stuff. That guy. Yes. He missed two doping. You have to check in yeah. in order to be checked for doping. Mm. Uh, they follow you, actually. Yeah. And he missed those appointments. Mm. and then he appealed because they suspended him they're all you're done yeah he appealed the suspension and at first it was reversed by the atp Mm. then the itf is all heck no it's gonna be back to a year Mm. so as of now he's suspended for a year now casper rude came to the defense of emer and said you know what that's that's a little bit of gibberish because a lot you should make it to where you go to a specific appointment and if you miss that then I understand being suspended. Yeah. Uh, first off, let's start with Rude. Do you agree with Rude's comments? Yeah. I mean, I don't fully know the procedure and process they do for doping testing to know how practical it is. But if Casper Rude's saying that, for some reason, I just have to kind of feel that he's probably in the right about it. But I don't know the exact details that um, orbit that at all. You know, I just know that. Like Serena and Venus were getting checked for doping like clockwork. Yes. And they weren't having trouble getting it done. So I don't understand why he's having trouble getting it done. So that's my first gripe. But then the second one is, of course, you know, if there's not a set appointment time and place or whatever it may be, why, what are they doing? Or how does it work? What's the issue? So it goes both ways. If it is such a broken process, why is everyone else doing it just fine? Yes, uh, uh, I do agree with Rude here mm-hmm. because if, if you have a specific, let's say you are doping, let's yeah. say you get caught, will it go out of your system that quickly? Mm-hmm. So even if it's set, let's say a week from when they're following you, it's mm-hmm. still going to be in your system, quote unquote. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter, right? Mm-hmm. So I agree with Rude. As a matter of fact, he made a statement. I'm going to read it real quick. It says, it feels like you are a prisoner in a way because if you are not there when they show up, then you have problems. Let's say you have to be home between 9 and 12 months, and if you're not there, you're suspended. Yeah. So I agree with Rude. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, do you have anything else to add about Emer? 
Not about Emer, but have we talked about another player who's going through a very similar situation? Halep? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, Jensen Brooksby. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Jensen Brooksby is uh, on the hot seat right now because he's missed multiple doping tests and he's kind of disappeared from the tour. Oh. Um, so I have a gut feeling because between me and you, his play style didn't seem like he should be beating the juggernauts he was beating. And now he's dodging doping tests. Um, it does make you wonder a little bit about what exactly is going on if, from this little stringy straw hat guy who beat people with the cat and mouse game consecutive matches in a row. Now he's disappeared. Um, I'd like to see how that plays out. Maybe we can dig into it and figure out more of the details, but he's going through a very similar story right now. Yeah, that's shocking that that didn't become a, a bigger news because, yeah. as you stated, he was a bigger name mm-hmm. and he was beating people he shouldn't be beating. Yeah. And he was just out there grinding it out. Yeah. And he was outlasting people. So th- to me, that's performing. <laughs> yes, that's amazing that, that it wasn't a bigger news. Yeah. So yeah, that that's that's crazy. Yeah. So I'll um, what I can tell you is it says Jens, Jensen Brooksby tells the AP he accepted a provisional ban for allegedly missing three doping tests. Whoa. In a row. So we will see. We'll see how things play out. He's only twenty two, and he says I've never failed a, a drug test and I've never taken any bad substances. But you know, we'll see what happens. You know, for me. I know that there is a history of certain athletes that are maybe smaller framed, quote unquote, or less physical that are finding ways to be very successful on the tour. And this is not the first time they've kind of just missed all their doping tests and kind of disappear from the tour for a while. And it just kind of goes under the radar. So, you know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know. He doesn't. He didn't come off as that kind of guy. He did not that we know him, right? But you know, and also like he's not like an Emir where the temperament's changing and he's getting ragey out there. Maybe the quote unquote roid rage. Um, Brooksby just seemed like a nice little guy who's just out there fighting for his uh, his success. So we'll see how this story plays out. Well, that's a good subject to end it for sure. So uh, is there anything else you'd like to add, or is that it? I have one last fun statistic for you, actually. Okay. Um, I want to talk about how many matches it took to lock in 100 wins. Oh. Okay. And this is for the big three and Carlos. Oh, there you go. Um, Roger Federer took 169 matches to get 100 wins. Djokovic took 143 to get 100 wins. Nadal, 137 to get 100 wins. Carlos Alcaraz took 132 matches, beating the whole big three to get his first 100 wins. Pretty big stuff. That's He's the leader right now. And then with that stat from earlier, how many weeks he's been at number one before 21? Mm. Uh, uh, everything is leading unless he gets injured. Yeah. That he's going to be the next big thing. Yeah. These We really thought that the... Well, I'll say this. Me and you have discussed this in the past, but we always said that the big three was a once-in-a-lifetime thing and that these were the greatest players in history. We're now going to see that the only way they can be surpassed is if someone just as good comes to the tour but doesn't have two rivals to fight with for every slam. Yes. Um, So if Yannick Sinner and Holger Rune aren't able to really step up to the plate and compete the way they need to in the finals with him, 
he could just take over the tour for a few years. Oh, for sure. Um, so it'll be fun to see how this plays out. Yes, it does. And Medvedev right now just can't beat him. Yeah. So it's all on center. Yep. So with that, I hope you guys were entertained. Adios, ATP.